kid with a painful testicle is torsion till proven otherwise. You can't rely on anti-emetics as the sole cure for everything that's wrong with the child. We'd like to think that, you know, we're two vaccinations away from eliminating pediatrics as a specialty, <laughs> but that's not the case. Boy, I can't believe it, how fast time flies. Rick, it's April. It's Risk Management Monthly, and when you look at the various uh, things we've done in the last few months, it's unbelievable. We had Michael Kessler last month, and I want you to introduce our guest this month because you know what? It doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> we've had two great guests in a row. Go ahead and introduce Steve for us. Steve Selps, uh, welcome aboard. Uh, Steve is at the uh, Nemours um, DuPont Hospital in uh, Delaware. He is one of the uh, brain trusts that was uh, borrowed from CHOP. And now it's 14 years ago when uh, uh, this all happened. Uh, Steve, welcome aboard. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Steve, you do each, uh, I don't know if it's every month, but in emergent, uh, the pediatric emergency care, you do pediatric cases. And uh, our theme this, uh, this day is pediatric emergency uh, problems. And uh, there's probably nobody more familiar with this topic than you are. So we've asked you to prepare some cases for us. Uh, we, Greg and I, have never heard these cases. They've been sealed in a mayonnaise jar <laughs> with Funkin' Wagner's, and so this is going to be cold for us to, t to take these on. But right. we asked for a, a, some diversity, and so let's begin. All right. Well, I have a few very interesting cases that I think uh, give some good teaching points. And uh, so there was a, a case of a, uh, a, a, a boy brought to a New York emergency department. Mother thought he put something in his nostrils, one of his nostrils. He was seen by the physician's assistant in the emergency department. She struggled to get this out, couldn't get it out. The emergency physician tried to get this foreign body out of the nose, but the child got agitated. No surprise about a young child getting agitated when you're poking in his nose. So the doctor gave up. He said, I, I can't handle this. Let's let him follow up with his pediatrician in a couple days and let him take it out. Instead, the mother went to an ear, nose, and throat physician uh, a, a few days later. And guess what was found there? It was a button battery. Of course. Oh, God. And so this turned out uh, 26 days later, apparently, the child had uh, uh, was noted to have a perforation through the nasal septum. And I think the point of this is that, uh, A, button batteries are scary stuff. And when no matter what orifice they're in, they can be a problem. And certainly a button battery in the nose doesn't have to stay there for very long to cause very serious damage. Uh, can cause significant burns uh, somewhere. With, some people say within six to eight hours, it can cause significant burns uh, if lodged in the nostril. Yep. I think the other point here is if you don't know what you're dealing with in the nose, it might be good to uh, take an x-ray and rather than uh, just sending the patient off somewhere and say, let somebody else figure it out. I'm going to ask a question, Steve. Couldn't they see the edge of this and realize it wasn't a uh, a marble or a bead yeah. or something? You would think. And, and it, yeah, I would think but so. Apparently, the kid's squirming, agitated. Uh, why they wouldn't think to get an x-ray, I don't yeah. know. But uh, apparently, they didn't know what they were dealing with exactly and just got tired. I think the other option is why didn't they just sedate the child? and uh, take the foreign body out in a nice controlled circumstance, that would have worked very well, too. That's what, that's what Ver said is for. 
and exactly. uh, <laughs> and and uh, have, having done it a bunch of times, I will say this: we talk about removing foreign bodies as if it's no big deal. It can be a big deal sometimes, right. and I think it's fair. Uh, if you've taken your picture, it doesn't look like a button battery and all of those things. I, I think all of those things on x-ray could be identified as a battery. If it's not, and you think it's a bead or a, a bean, and I've seen all that kind of stuff either in the ear or in the nose, I have seen the situation where sometimes uh, the discretion is the better way to go and get some help. Right. But uh, but there's no question that a button battery, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the electrolytic solution of the nose, uh, which is pretty much like the rest of the electrolytic solution in your body, sets up a perfect uh, venue to transmit these, these, these electrical charges back and forth. I'm not 100% sure. You're probably right. Yeah, well, because I, 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 I know that button batteries in the esophagus um, are kiss of death. And, Def- and, definitely. And I've, and I've certainly seen that. And the kids, I saw one kid who was not vomiting, was not giving the parents much trouble. And when they came in, they perforated. Yeah. And, and, and there's nothing like uh, saliva in the thorax. I mean, it's it's an ugly it's an right. ugly presentation. Right. So, and I'm, speaking of the the esophagus, I know I'm aware of a case where it was uh, there was a battery lodged in the esophagus. The emergency doctor just got one view, a PA view, and on there it looked like a coin. It just has a round appearance of a metallic object, and the uh, it was the decision was made in talking to a gastroenterologist. Well, let's see if it'll fall into the stomach on the next day. And unfortunately, the next day is when they got a lateral neck x-ray and realized that this isn't a coin. This is a button a button battery because on the lateral x-ray, you could see the rim of the button battery. So I think a good teaching point is there is one x-ray may not show you exactly what you're dealing with. You might need to get a PA and lateral view to make sure that it's a coin versus a button battery. All right. So the take-home point here is identify that foreign body. Because right. most foreign bodies are not a minute-to-minute kind of issue. Right. Batteries are a different deal. Definitely. People talk okay. about actually uh, doing uh, AP and laterals uh, because sometimes if it's a coin, there may be two coins. and so Exactly. You, uh, so people are suggesting that you be generous. There's also a couple of tricks. The whole issue here was that this um, took a protracted period of time to be removed and in the process did its damage. There are two tricks that I'm aware of. One of them is the use of a, one of these tiny little balloon catheters because in the nose, unlike the ear, uh, there's a vertical uh, aspect of this thing where you have the opportunity to go high and potentially sneak a catheter behind a foreign body, blow up the balloon and pull it out. And then there's right. another trick where you put uh, on a – you take a – Q-tip, but not the, um, you take the wooden end of the Q-tip and put a little crazy glue on it and uh, touch it to the foreign body and, and it generally dries pretty quickly and then you extract the foreign body with the uh, wooden end of the Q-tip. That's a, a kind all of, of trick. All of those have been written about. I have tried the uh, the glue. That hasn't helped me very much, but the the other technique using a uh, a catheter device really does work very well. And sometimes, maybe not for button battery, but depending on the foreign body, we will just have the parents blow into the child's mouth 
when we obstruct the uh, the good nostril, the nostril that doesn't have the foreign body, we'll obstruct that with our finger, have the mother blow into the child's mouth. This is called the kiss technique. It's like a mouth-to-mouth uh, kiss, and the, the mother blows as hard as she can, and the foreign body comes flying out of the other nostril. That really works very well, too. Yeah, and we can't overemphasize the fact that this is upsetting to a child and you know that's why they make some of those agents exactly and we've we've used them very successfully and i personally knockwood have never had a bad reaction with one of the agents to sedate and uh never killed a kid nothing like that and uh, as far as i'm concerned it made my life a whole lot better yeah and, and I think the other thing, we all have our limits, uh, as you were saying. Get some help if you're really stuck. Uh, I'm aware of another case of a five-year-old uh, boy in Nevada who went to the emergency department there with a bead stuck in his ear. And the nurses, they were struggling. They are holding him down and uh, blood coming out of his ear. Uh, they didn't sedate this poor child either. And they didn't get help. Eventually, they, uh, uh, the next day, someone did get the foreign body out. And the, the family sued and claiming that he has permanent uh, hearing damage. So I think the bottom line is, you know, give up after a while. If you're really having trouble, uh, don't be so macho that you can't uh, ask for help. Uh, I think that's uh, very important to remember. You know, all of us, when we were young in our career, thought there wasn't any foreign body we couldn't get to. Right. I had my comeuppance fairly early on with a needle which was in a foot and um and uh i thought hey no problem and i sent that thing back over with with marker needles in it to try and figure the thing out and it had slipped into a tendon sheath and you could not see that sucker (laughs) and finally i had general surgery come in and uh take it out and it took them time to get it so you know what sometimes you can't get ego invested in removal right. of the foreign body. In those cases uh, where there's a needle or something like that, you basically put them in the MRI machine and turn it on to high, <laughs> yeah. and it will extract any metallic foreign body that you need to remove. Yeah. I think I think that kid's name is now Gimpy too. So I really <laughs> I really hate that. All right, what else? We All got? right. Well, I've got a three-week-old baby in Florida who presented with a rash and. Uh, it was described as blood blisters with yellow specks on the chest. And the doctor diagnosed a possible staphylococcal infection and prescribed cephalexin. And the baby was seen by the pediatrician a week later. The lesions were still there. And uh, the pediatrician made a diagnosis of dermatitis. Eventually, it was found out that this was a herpes infection. And this is a major problem for this three-week-old baby. Uh, a cyclovir was eventually started, but by this time, the baby had already developed meningoencephalitis and seizures. Oh, jeez. So that's a major problem. And it's not the first time that's happened, unfortunately. Uh, a lot of little babies are brought to the emergency department with uh, vesicular rash on the scalp. And it's often misinterpreted as a staph infection, or maybe it was the scalp monitor leads uh, that were used uh, intrauterine. And um, the baby has a chance of doing well if you can catch the herpes infection when it's just in the skin phase. But once it gets uh, to the neurologic system, the consequences are usually devastating, and it's usually a multi-million dollar lawsuit. Let's think about this a minute, though. For most docs who are not – you're a kid doc, Steve. (laughs) 
Right. Uh, for most of us who see the general run-of-the-mill population, I think these rashes are not simple. Oh, definitely. And, and they can be confusing at the moment, and I've certainly seen those which are herpes with secondary bacterial infection right. when kids of a certain age scratch them. So I guess my rule of thumb would be in a child under a month of age, uh, I'm going to have them seen pretty quick right? Uh, be- because I-, I just don't feel immediately comfortable with that kind of rash. Well, I'll tell you, even I, I've been uh, very experienced with this, but I- I'm also confused very often. And in each of these cases that uh, I have seen, the pediatrician has seen the child as well and has been fooled. So it's not just the emergency doctors that are fooled by these rashes. But I think what you're saying is a young baby with a vesicular rash, you should think about herpes first and staph second. And it's not a bad idea to start a cyclovir treatment while you're waiting for the baby to be seen. If you can't get a dermatologist right away, start the acyclovir and have the baby seen as soon as possible. Yeah, I think the downside on acyclovir is so small. Right. And the upside is so good. You're allowed to start two drugs. I know the purists would take me out, beat me <laughs> in the hose when I say this. But for some of us who are not quite as pure as the driven snow... Uh, we would be willing to to cover both ends of that. And I don't know whether you guys have seen any problems with acyclovir in kids, but I really have not. I and, agree. And, it's, yeah. a pretty safe, it's a pretty safe drug, fortunately. It's a pretty safe drug. It'd be hard to overdose on acyclovir, I right. think. And then you'd kill billions of viruses and things like that. Right. I suppose it's a bad thing. But uh, let's talk about rashes for just a second because – I've been fooled over the years. I had a, a case of disseminated measles, which looked to me like Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Um, I, I think that, that uh, you know, I'm, in fact, I immediately took a look at the child and thought they had meningococcemia. Uh, then I went and he was kind of going through the, um, the differential. And unfortunately, that child already had central nervous system involvement. But um, it, it was more than one dermatologist at the University of Michigan who looked at this before they came up with the diagnosis. Well, I, I would just comment on meningococcemia. You mentioned meningococcemia, and that is still one of the, uh, the life-threatening infections that we still see. We don't see as much of that anymore either because of the uh, immunizations. But uh, a seven-month-old brought to a Massachusetts physician and referred to the emergency department. The emergency doctor examined the child, got a chest x-ray, diagnosed bronchiolitis, and uh, the patient did not have a rash at that time. Six hours later, the child developed a purpuric rash and was brought back to the hospital and then diagnosed with meningococcemia. Uh, This child did not do very well. He he had amputation of his right hand and Mm. some of the digits of his left hand, some of the toes of his foot. Fortunately, the physician, uh, the jury found in favor of the physician. I think it's very difficult to make the diagnosis of meningococcemia without seeing that purpuric rash. Any of us would make the diagnosis if we saw fever in a purpuric rash. But unfortunately, uh, there is about uh, 30, 40% of the cases that can present without a rash or with a viral-looking rash. So it can be a tough diagnosis. Yeah, I remember... I remember a phone call from a mother to the department, and one of the nurses said, "Uh, Dr. Henry, 
this woman's talking about blood spots on the, her baby. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh my God. That's bad. <laughs> That's, I don't know anything good that does that. And I'd like to make a list. And yeah. I said, yeah, right now. I said, send an ambulance if you have to, but they got to come in now. Right. These Obviously, cases often can begin, you know, with a, with a, flu-like syn- uh, syndrome they're often in the winter when that, there's a lot of other flu around so you get sucked into that uh, that exactly. diagnosis we had a case at our hospital uh it wasn't a kid but it was a college student and uh you know they're they were typically the ones who got this kind of thing because the close living quarters came home uh went to uh er and uh, was diagnosed with the flu came to our er the next day and there was a lawsuit because the issue was when were the petechiae noted and when was the antibiotics be given. Uh, be, uh, given, however, I think most people will, will acknowledge that once the petechiae are there, the the die is pretty much cast. Although a jury of reasonable people is going to say, "Doctor, you know, the sooner the better." Yes, right. right. Yes, yeah, that one, is true. One other warning is we'd like to think that uh, you know we're too two vaccinations away from eliminating pediatrics as a specialty, (laughs) but that's not the case. And, and what we really have are pockets in the country right now, you know, the Jenny McCarthy pockets who are people who are against the concept of vaccination. And uh, we'd like to think, well, is that in poor people? Is that in people who have illegally crossed the border? The answer is no, Some of these are very well-to-do people who have now decided going online that uh, they had one kid with autism. They're not going to have another. And um, as as far as I know, there's been no proven relationship. And the Harvard uh, Public Health School looked for this between between immunizations and autism. But try and tell that to these people online who are talking about this. So I I think the index of suspicion – that the kid may have not been vaccinated still needs to be a part of the process. Right. And we still have to keep our guard up, as you're implying. I think we don't see as much meningitis. And some of my residents have never seen a case of bacterial meningitis. And uh, therefore, they may not recognize it when it comes in. But uh, it's it's still out there every once in a while. We still have to keep our guard up. If the child doesn't look well, it doesn't matter if they have a rash or not. If the child doesn't look well, we have to be concerned about a bacterial illness. Steve, yeah, um, sick, sick Steve, kids are sick kids. Oh, wait a minute. Right. Right. Steve, uh, in, in that regard, uh, what is your recommendation with regard to the use of empiric acyclovir in kids who are getting lumbar punctures as part of their septic workup? I think in the first months of life, there's debate about it. There are some infectious disease specialists that say if you're going to, in the first month of life, you're going to treat the baby with empiric antibiotics, acyclovir should be one of them. Not everyone believes in that, but I think that's uh, not a bad rule. Now, beyond the first month of life, herpes is pretty unusual, so we wouldn't do it in that situation. Mm-hmm. But as we said, acyclovir is a pretty benign drug, and uh, herpes uh, encephalitis is a terrible infection. So I would err on the side of giving the acyclovir in any child that I'm halfway worried about, any uh, newborn in a first month of life. Got you. So I have another case here. This, this one uh, I, I think is a good reminder about child abuse. This is a, a three-year-old who was brought to an emergency department for a sore throat. A throat culture was obtained. It didn't grow strep, but for some reason, uh, they didn't (laughs) culture strep only. It came back positive for gonococcal, a Neisseria gonorrhea. 
and a report was filed for sexual abuse. And the, uh, the children were taken from the home. An investigation was done. A child abuse expert was called in who said that, no, this is a false positive. This child doesn't have gonorrhea. And then the family turned around and sued uh, the physicians for malpractice. Uh, and fortunately, again, a jury found in favor of the physicians in the hospital. To me, I was surprised that a, a, a lawyer would even take this case because it's extremely rare for a physician to be successfully sued when reporting a case of child abuse when they're acting in good faith and, and acting in the best interests of the child. We, you know, most states have a statute uh, that right. speaks exactly to that issue. And with the states that I'm familiar with, um, my own state, uh, you, it, is a, it is a high misdemeanor not to report – Reasonable suspicion. And if it was done in good faith, uh, you are, you, they are barred from bringing an action. And I think that's what we, we want to over-challenge this. I often wonder sometimes if this action, getting a lawyer, wasn't precipitated by the way it was explained to the parents. Um, you know, sometimes you gotta, you got to take some action and and um, the con- you know the consequences of that may be to save children, and I, I think we 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 don't want to pass the message on here that you're going to get sued because I think that's real rare. I agree. You shouldn't uh, avoid reporting, as you said. It's a misdemeanor to not report. We should always err on the side of reporting. If you're acting in good faith, if you don't have a vendetta against the family, you're not going to get into trouble. The judge will throw this case out in uh, 99 out of 100 cases. And I think here maybe the doctor didn't do the best investigative work. He got Someone got a culture and they reported it as child abuse. Maybe it would have been better to talk to a child abuse expert and review things. But still, uh, the doctor is acting in good faith and trying to do what was best for the patient. And uh, fortunately, uh, this case didn't go anywhere. Yeah, you don't yeah, have it, to – Greg – you don't have to be right. You just have to be uh, reasonable. And so th- this sounded like the person was very reasonable. Yes. Yeah, you just have to have a suspicion, and it should definitely be reported, and you shouldn't be worried about a lawsuit. Yeah, when I was a, uh, when I was a uh, young attending, one of the guys who was a senior resident at the university in surgery and a good friend of ours and worked for us on weekends, uh, his kid fell – from a, I don't know, from part of the garage and, and had a femur fracture. Well, the medical student who saw the case at the U reported him for child abuse. And uh, with, with, with great uh, dignity, he said to the kid, you did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, just because just I'm a doctor doesn't right. mean I don't have to go through the process. And yeah. uh, it was, you know, occasionally in your career, you see something elegant and educational. That was it. Yeah. Well, there's no question child abuse occurs in all social classes, all races. Even physicians uh, can lose it for a moment and abuse their child. So if you have a suspicion, you can't worry about who the guardian is or who you're going to upset. If you really have a strong suspicion, you have to report the case. Well, in my household, it was considered child abuse to serve them a domestic Beaujolais. <laughs> so uh, uh, child abuse is definitional, of course, you know, not reading the third bedtime story. So uh, it, it all depends where you're coming from here. Although it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily take much. Uh, a shaken baby incident can occur in literally seconds uh, from a, 
you know, a frustrated babysitter, boyfriend, those kinds of things. And um, it's, a, it's a shame, but uh, we need to be aware of it. Yep. All right, here's one that I know you have a lot of experience with, and uh, testicular torsion is still a major cause of malpractice in pediatric emergency medicine. I know in general emergency departments, you see a lot of this as well. But a teenager came to a Michigan emergency department. Uh, he actually, the emergency doctor actually ordered an ultrasound test, which showed good venous flow to the testicle. The emergency doctor then consulted the urologist. The urologist chose not to come to examine the patient, just heard about the story and said, why don't we just discharge the patient and send him home. I'll, I'll follow up another time. Unfortunately, 48 hours later, the patient came back with increased swelling of the scrotum. And at this time, he did have uh, testicular torsion and uh, his testicle was found to be necrotic when they went to the operating room. And he turned around, the patient sued the emergency physician and claimed that he should have gotten a second urology consult uh, when the first one didn't come in to see him and also claimed that you can't always believe what the ultrasound test shows. Well, well I, oh our, my God. It, he, was, this, he was awarded $500,000, by the way. I don't think one <laughs> testicle is worth $500,000. <laughs> I was going to say, I'd sell you one right now. <laughs> Yours is for, that. Yours isn't worth much, Greg. But yeah, five hundred thousand is an is a you know I often I often have problems with this because I wonder what the damages are. It's not like they can't have children. Uh, they can install a prosthesis that looks like a chicken egg that would be is better than the one he had before. Oh, actually, you know, in this case, it turned out his remaining testicles found to be non-functional, and that's probably why the uh, the suit was so high. You're right. Usually, it settles for about forty thousand, fifty thousand. That's all a testicle is worth. But in this case, this child actually had a problem with his other testicle, and I think the jury felt sorry for him. Well, you know. It- I think that there's there ought to be a sort of a standard. A kid with a painful testicle is torsion till proven otherwise. Yes. I mean, that's how many things does a kid have in his testicle? I, you know, if the ultrasound shows that he's got a uh, a tumor, uh, well, you've done him a favor by checking. Uh, but the but the urologist, to me, I, I just think a standard is painful testicle. Uh, call urology and. It, there's, I, I think that they pretty much kind of have to take a look. The other thing is I've seen a kid lose a testicle because they wanted one test and they wanted another test. Right. They wanted another test, and we refer to that as uh, castration by procrastination. <laughs> and and, and I, that's, that's unacceptable as well because I think most people would say that there is some time relationship here between ontorting that testicle and and getting something going. I actually had a had a case where a two year old was diagnosed as as having an ep, a, a um, an epididymitis, and I thought, oh my god, this right. is a sexually active two year old. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> we've got to do something here. Yeah. I think that's a concern. People don't realize that little babies also get testicular torsion. Some some physicians may neglect to get the diaper off. That's one way to get into trouble. But I think, yes, your your point about having urology come to see the patient is a good one. And that, that is a policy at my hospital and many other hospitals. If you call the urologist about a testicle, they come in and see the patient and make a decision. Because even the ultrasound is not 100%. And uh, if you've got a patient in front of you who's got a very large swollen scrotum, something's wrong. And the urologist should take a look at that. I had a, uh, I had a urologist actually tell me 
that, uh, well, I wouldn't worry about that. He's The guy's 25 now. That's kind of old. Well, if you look in the literature, about 10 or 12% of, of testicular torsions are above the age of 18. Um, you know, it's a healthy, athletic guy who was working out at the gym, sudden onset of pain. If you lift that testicle up, he's off the bed. What else could it be? Right. <laughs> I said, and I said, you ought to come in and reduce this. And, and, I, and he says, um, well, would you, would you go ahead and, well, I'm coming in get the study. I said, you're not going to explore this? He says, just get the study. It makes everybody feel better. Right. So, yeah, I went ahead and did it. Of course, what did he have? He had a testicular torsion. Right. Come on. But, but as long as I think you did it in the right way and calling the urologist, not wasting time on the study, as they're, as they're coming in to see the patient, that's the time to get the study. Don't wait until you, after you have your study to call your urology colleague because time, the, the clock is ticking. Yep. There's there a uh, general view by at least some urologists that the way you diagnose this stuff is by making a small hole in the scrotum and taking a look uh, because of the uh, unreliability of some of these other tests. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think most people would say that there's, what, a 5 to 8% um, uh, false negative rate with no matter which test you use. So the question is, uh, what, do you, what are you going to make the basis of operating on uh, when, when the law – it's a simple procedure, 20 minutes skin to skin at most, and that's when they pex the other testicle down as well because you don't do one without doing the other. Um, I just think that sometimes physical examination is the way to go on these things. Yeah. And, and uh, not delaying, there was another case in Massachusetts where a teenager complained of lower abdominal pain and some intermittent pain in the groin. I imagine the triage nurse didn't recognize the seriousness of this and sent the patient back out into the waiting room. It was about three and a half hours before the physician actually got to examine the, the boy and then testicular torsion was noted. So uh, these are cases uh, that do sometimes present with abdominal pain and some teenagers don't want to tell you that their scrotum is enlarged. They, they uh, dance around that and say they have lower abdominal pain. But if there's any hint about a testicular problem, the patient obviously needs to be seen immediately. You make a good point that the history from the kids, there, are, there is such a thing as a shy child right. uh, in front of their mother. Most you know, 15-year-old boys don't want to admit that they have testicles. <laughs> right. And, and, and when, when you talk about abdominal pain, I think a, 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 an abdominal exam in a teenager is incomplete unless you've also checked the testicles. Um, we always forget that the neuropathway there, uh, the, the testicle descends along the gubernaculum, carrying those nerve fibers back, which go back into the abdomen. And I've seen at least two of these whose initial complaint wasn't testicular pain, but, but lower abdominal pain. Right. And, and I, I think that, that I, it, they sort of flow together. I don't know why you would check a young male without feeling the belly and checking the testicles. The goober how? The gubernaculum. Come on, Rick. Come on. Remember your anatomy? I, I, you, you were an ace at anatomy in med school. Sure. Goober. All right. <laughs> Moving on. All right. So there's uh, a pretty easy one here of a, a 14-month-old boy in Arizona. 
who uh, presented to a hospital with respiratory symptoms. Looks like at, at first they did, they thought he might have bronchiolitis. They did an RSV test that was negative. And uh, then they decided that maybe this was an upper airway problem. Somebody detected Strider and they gave actually treatment of racemic epinephrine because the child was in distress. He was discharged about an hour later. The mother was told to continue with acetaminophen and to use albuterol uh, nebulizer treatments at home every four hours. And unfortunately, the child became apneic at home about two hours after discharge from the hospital. And the family sued. An expert witness claimed that they shouldn't have discharged a child uh, who had just received racemic epinephrine without observing the patient for a longer period of time. And a jury fortunately found in favor of the physician and the hospital. But uh, I think there's some good points here. Uh, there's debate about how long you have to watch a child who received racemic epinephrine for croup. Uh, some people, we used to say four hours, uh, the medication has to wear off and then you want to get a look at the child and see what he's like after the medications have worn off. Then it got lower to two to three hours. And I, I think that's probably what most emergency physicians will go by, uh, observing two to three hours. One hour may be a little too too brief a period. <clears throat> What about the, uh, I would assume that we've decided that this child had croup. Was that the, was that the final diagnosis? Yes. yes because epiglottitis, uh, if, you're, if you don't know how to look, and if, if you're not careful about it, can masquerade. And I, I think you, I sort of like to see in the back of the throat if I get a chance with a child like this, because I don't want to make that mistake. Yeah. Fortunately, we don't see much epiglottitis in the pediatric population anymore, although there are occasionally unimmunized patients or or an immunocompromised patient who could have it. Uh, We see children with bacterial tracheitis, I wouldn't say commonly, but more commonly than epiglottitis. So you're right, there are other things out there that can cause upper airway obstruction, uh, other infections besides croup that you have to worry about. Uh, Steve, what's the organism if they've got... uh uh, bacterial tracheitis. There's a variety of organisms, but Staph aureus is still the most common. But there's a multitude of organisms that can do it, and some of the cases are polymicrobial. Steve, uh, I recall, but I'm not 99% sure, that this issue of rebound was uh, pretty, pretty much um, disputed in yeah. the literature. And in fact, um, that really, I, I think, is, is it's a tough call to say that that is an issue. I think the people could still get back to where they were at baseline, or in fact, the problem may get worse. But the idea that epi is associated with rebound, I think, is not exactly kosher. I think you're correct. I think you're correct. They don't usually get worse after the uh, hours later. But when the medication wears off, there's a possibility you're going to see the child about as sick as he was when he started. Exactly. I think, I think the bottom line here is that we don't use racemic epinephrine on all children with croup. We save it for the patients who are in distress, the ones who have strider at rest, the ones who have retractions, maybe some hypoxia. Those are the ones who get racemic epinephrine. And I think any child who's sick enough to, to deserve this drug probably should be observed for a decent period of time. Two to three hours would be reasonable. Um, Steve, at this point in time, and I know there's been controversy, is there a role for steroids in these kids? Uh, definitely steroids are used for just about all patients with croup these days. That had been debated in the literature for decades, but um, most recently I think everyone is convinced that steroids do work very well for croup. 
And uh, we used to say, well, it's just for the kids with moderate to severe croup, but there are studies now that show that even for mild croup, it's going to get the uh, child better a little bit sooner. It's going to get the family back to work a little bit sooner. So pretty much anyone who's made the effort to come to the hospital with croup should get a dose of dexamethasone. Steve, you mentioned mentioned that the diagnosis here was um, uh, croup, but... um, I guess there's the potential that this might have been uh, uh, RSV because some of those kids have uh, sudden apnea, and it's not necessarily predictable regarding the severity of the case, which kind of scares the bejesus out of me. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a very good point. Uh, we do worry about that. Specifically, though, we worry about that in young babies, usually less than three months of age or so. This was a 14-month-old, so I'd be less worried about him going home and suddenly develop apnea from RSV uh, bronchiolitis. But in the first three months of life, uh, when I see a child with bronchiolitis, I find an excuse to admit him to the hospital. I don't care what's going on. I don't care how good he looks. But if I have a little baby in the first three months of life with bronchiolitis, I'm going to admit them to the hospital and let somebody else uh, be the brave one to discharge the patient. Because the apnea could occur on the first night, it could occur on the second night or the third night. But I, I don't want to read about myself in the newspaper the next day. I'm going to admit them to the hospital and uh, let them be observed at least for 24 hours. The high-risk patients are the ones with cardiac disease, the, the little babies who are premature, born prematurely. And certainly a baby in distress, a baby who has atelectasis on x-ray from bronchiolitis, those are the ones that are more at risk for developing apnea. You also mentioned, that, and I guess it's available at your hospital real, uh, uh, readily, the RSV uh, test yes. for these cases, although my understanding is about 30% of them are not RSV, but they still have a viral condition that's causing inflammation and wheezing and is transmittable to other kids. One of the things that I've seen at our hospital when we transfer these kids out is the uh, pediatric centers want to know, have we gotten uh, some kind of RSV test? And I think it's irrelevant because these kids have viruses that are transmittable to other children uh, independent of whether it's RSV or something else. I agree. You can certainly have non-RSV bronchiolitis. Their treatment has not changed. The prognosis isn't changed. Mm-hmm. And I usually challenge my residents who want to get an RSV test. I say, well, what will you do if it's positive? What will you do if it's negative? If exactly. it's the same, there's no need to get the test. We get it in some cases when the family really wants to know. Or if we're admitting the patient to the hospital and for isolation purposes, we may have a need to know what infection we're dealing with. Or if we think it's going to save us from a large, uh, uh, another expensive workup. Otherwise, if we know he's got RSV bronchiolitis, we won't do other tests. Sometimes this study is helpful, but it's overused. I know that. Let me talk uh, for just a second about the irrationality of testing. Uh, RSV tests, like everything else, has a a certain uh, false positive, false negative rate. Uh, The flu tests, A and B, have considerable false positives and false negatives. But there was a study done, and Rick, you published this in Emergency Medicine Abstracts, which said if they had, the, the people working up the case had a positive flu test, they stopped ordering other tests. Whether, and that's sort of irrational, <laughs> but they did, and actually it cut down the amount of ordering on these kids. Actually, I wouldn't agree that that's irrational. Everybody likes to have a confirmed diagnosis, and when a kid comes in with a flu-like illness, um, 
you know, it depends on whether you're in the center of the flu season where it's a waste of time to do it or whether you're on the shoulders of the flu season where you're not really quite sure. But the idea of a physician knowing, I feel relatively confident this is the flu and my, the test is positive. We're not going to get a CBC. We're not going to get a urine. We're not going to get a chest x We're not going to do all of these other things that, you know, emergency physicians are so um, want to do. Uh, there's this issue about testing that's kind of like uh, we got we have this we have this virus called testing that um, <laughs> I think that um, if you feel confident that the person has the flu and they they do a flu test, that means you don't get any antibiotics. I think there's a lot of good things that come of it, um, but not every doctor gets the advantage of it because some of the smart doctors don't need to do the test and they don't need the, the chest x-ray and they don't give the antibiotics. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and uh, if you actually look at all those numbers about false positives, false negatives, how does that factor in? I mean, I, you're right. I think it gives us comfort, but we, we should understand clearly that it's non-scientific comfort sometimes. <laughs> well, along those lines, and little babies who have a positive RSV study, a rapid test for RSV, there's always a, a debate, well, the baby has a little fever. Do I stop now and assume that the RSV is the cause of the fever, or do I finish my workup for sepsis in a little four-week-old who has a fever? And that's still a debate. There is a large multicentered study that showed that the chance of having meningitis with the RSV infection is very, very low. It's not zero, but it's very, very low. So if you have a little baby who looks well with their RSV, and there aren't too many that, that fit that category, but if you have a baby who looks well, you may not be obligated to do the lumbar puncture. The one thing that the study did show that the babies, uh, females with uh, RSV bronchiolitis, little babies, about 6 to 10% of them have a chance of having a urinary tract infection in addition to the RSV. So the one test I would do is I would do a, a, a cath specimen to obtain urine, even though I do have uh, one diagnostic study showing me uh, the infection. Isn't it kind of like um, a statistically unusual to have a poor kid be uh, issued two acute infections? And, you know, one of those things about these, I still r wrestle with, these uh, urine infections in terms of uh, are they really truly urine infections I th mm -hmm. my my sense is that most of this literature says uh, you're going to be issued uh, a viral infection and a concomitant secondary infection is really going to be pretty uncommon I would be interested Steve in your view of the AAP came out with um, recommendations uh, in uh, last year actually about febrile uh, urinary infections in kids and um, they basically allowed one option which said um, you could bag a kid I know that that's like a mortal sin bagging a kid <laughs> if that urine is uh, negative and the kid is really not likely to have a risk for urine infections that you could get away with it if it's positive the kid does need to have a a catheter placed because those of us on the outside uh, are really pretty reluctant to be suprapubic tapping or casting every one of these febrile kids who has, we're not sure it's a virus. You know, kids get like seven or eight colds a year. Some of them have fevers. And um, I think that, you know, the parents get a little freaky. The nurses can't do it. Now there's a little blood down there. And it's like, oh, geez. I, 
I agree. It's not it's not a fun procedure, and we do it routinely. But it's uh, we have to think about what it's like for the patient and the family. I think the uh, strategy you recommend is reasonable. If you have a negative UA on your bag specimen, you're probably okay. Uh, you know, your analysis bag, is pretty reliable. The bag specimen, guys. Come on, you might as well flow the stuff through a cesspool first. I, I don't agree. I don't agree. I think that if it's, if it's well, negative, if it's contaminated, you're going to have to go further. Exactly. But if it's yeah. if it's negative, well, then you got lucky. You might have saved the child to study. But otherwise, you're right. You can't. Uh, you can't, you don't want to start antibiotics based on the bag specimen. No, not yeah, Steve. By the way, uh, Rick is much more sensitive to these issues. Because he now has a grand, uh, a little granddaughter, so okay. uh, he, he, he he's now very sensitive. To Actually, these things. Uh, tomorrow is uh, her first birthday, and um, yesterday, um, my son called me and he said, "Dad, Dad, she's got a rash," and uh, <laughs> oh, geez, and uh, so he sent me a picture via his telephone, which we then pulled up on the computer, and it was not fortunately a purpuric rash, and uh, next thing you know. These are young parents. This is their first baby. They're trying to take a temperature on this kid, and uh, they're very uh, um, reluctant to put that thermometer very far up that kid's little butt. And uh, he, he tells me, well, we took the temperature seven times, and it's somewhere between 100 and 106. Jeez, <laughs> 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 Louise, I said, Daniel, come on, give me a number here. So it turns out yep. she had a little fever, and, and uh, because they uh, – they um, are new parents. The kid went to the doctor at 1 o'clock today. And so I just got a call from Daniel. Uh, uh, the kid probably has now been admitted to the ICU. And uh, God knows what's going on. But I, I tell him, it's, it's a virus, Dad. It's a virus. Yeah, yeah. By the way, if he sues you, Rick, um, I'll come in as a, as a character witness and testify that you're a character. I've done everything, I've done everything wrong. I have no, uh, uh, no written record. I have no malpractice insurance. The kid could make a fortune. Yes, they could. All right, they let's could, go. They could take over this program. They could inherit, right. yeah. In the area of the program, right. We have to talk about appendicitis because that's still a, a major source of malpractice in uh, pediatric cases. And I can tell you about a two-year-old boy from California. Now, appendicitis is never at the top of anyone's list in a two-year-old. It's pretty unusual. But a two-year-old presented to California with dehydration. He had vomiting. Uh, he was given some medication to reduce the vomiting. Uh, he went to, he had some blood tests that showed a high white blood count uh, with a uh, predominance of neutrophils. Uh, he refused to drink. He was discharged to home. He came back again to the emergency department with vomiting. Now it was bilious vomiting and he was clearly dehydrated. And uh, he was again given an injection of promethazine and discharged to home to follow up with his pediatrician. I won't tell you the whole story, but eventually he was admitted to the hospital and turned out to have a ruptured appendix. And this, again, is a tough diagnosis on a two-year-old, but I, I think it makes a point that we have to think about it even on young children. And I think the other point to be had here is that you can't rely on antiemetics as the sole cure for everything that's wrong with the child. I, I think there may be an over de- overuse and overdependence on antiemetics, especially now that we have undansetron, which is a great medication. Uh, Steve, uh, bilious vomiting is supposed to indicate you've got some serious stuff going on. Isn't that true? 
I think in general that's true. We do see some children who, uh, after vomiting multiple times, they may have some yellowish-looking emesis, and we just uh, write that off as uh, just the fact that they've uh, vomited everything in their in their gastric uh, contents, all their gastric contents. But I think in general, that should raise a few uh, flags. And um, I think the inter-reader reliability of deciding what it actually looks like is, yeah. uh, I'm not sure that study's been done, but right. certainly when they decided to, what who had projectile vomiting and who didn't, what kid doesn't have projectile <laughs> vomiting? I, I mean, I, I think that some of these terms, we don't quite understand um, ourselves. I would say this, Steve, as you presented that case, it was interesting that the one thing you didn't present was the physical examination right. of the child. Right. Um, did they have guarding? Did they have rebound? Um, could you uh, elicit the pain by pounding on, on, on the foot? Uh, all these things which we were trained to do as old docs. Uh, you know, this is back, you know, Rick and I took care of Lincoln. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and it, that didn't go very well for us. But we learned a lot of things which it's like the young forget. And I still think on kids, physical examination tells you a lot of things. Oh, you're definitely, definitely right there. I, I, I'm missing some details on these cases. I don't know exactly what that showed. I think a two-year-old, it can be tough, too. The examination on a two-year-old with belly pain is going to be different uh, than an older child. But there's no question that the diagnosis is usually made by physical exam. Steve, I'm curious what? as to... Uh, what the uh, procedure is at your hospital with regards to the imaging of suspected appendicitis. Have you uh, moved on to primarily doing ultrasounds or are you in the world of CTs yet? Well, that's a good question. I think all of us want to cut back on the CTs and the radiation exposure to children. And there is a movement across the country to get ultrasounds on the children as much as possible. I think we're frustrated, as are a lot of other centers, that we get the ultrasound and they very often can't visualize the appendix. And therefore, you end up getting a cascade afterwards and now you've delayed things a bit. Uh, I think that that's still our procedure and still the procedure of most hospitals. Get the ultrasound first. If it's helpful, great. If it's not, then get the CAT scan. Some of my surgeons laugh at me and say, you're wasting your time with that ultrasound. Just get the CAT scan or call us. Don't get anything. Maybe we'll make the diagnosis, as Dr. Henry said, with just our, our hands. Oh and we don't God. need any studies. Uh, but the trend is to get an ultrasound first. I've, uh, I've tried to follow this literature and um – the Europeans, the Dutch, the Israelis are really, really, really far ahead of us in terms of uh, doing this. And I've seen studies that basically are consistently in the 90% with regards to sensitivity. CAT scans at 95%. So uh, we just need to get a lot better. I just I talked to the head of radiology at Stanford in an interview uh, not all that long ago. And, um, you know, they're trying to move in this direction, but... Uh, they still basically do CAT scans on on half the kids, and that is um, nowhere near how how good the uh, Europeans are at um, at doing ultrasound and feeling comfortable about it. But the idea I think is is that we just need to, to you know create the environment for the radiologist to learn how to do this stuff. I mean, there must be a course in Cancun where they can go now <laughs> and, and learn this because. Uh, we're we're lagging behind, and these young kids, these five, six, seven, ten-year-olds, are really susceptible to 
this uh, um, radiation, despite the fact that you know the ped hospitals are saying we're using this Alara technique where they're using as little radiation as possible. But uh, my concern is that they're still doing tons of CTs because they haven't really embraced the idea of doing ultrasounds and get, getting good at it. If we need to repeat this, it is 450 times the radiation of a chest X-ray. If if my five-year-old granddaughter, I've got one of those, had abdominal pain and the ultrasound was equivocal and she had rebounder guarding, I'd have them take her appendix out. I I, I don't think that the I think the CT scan gives enough radiation. And for a child who's five, by the age of thirty-five or forty, she can have a tumor. Well, you for, know, the, if, for surgeons to say, um, for surgeons to say, you know, I don't know why you're bothering with this. These guys are—that's um, three standard devi- deviations off the bell. They shouldn't be saying things like that at yeah. all. No, uh, well, I, I think it's cavalier, and because you don't see the damage, doesn't mean there isn't damage. And I right. think we have to ask some some, you know, serious questions about this. I just, and if you look at everybody's literature, the, the CAT scan had probably has a five to 6% miss rate. Ultrasound may have a 5% miss rate. Physical examination may have a 10 or 12% miss, uh, miss rate. But the, the downside of using a, an instrument these days to look in there, take out the appendix. I mean, there can't be more than one in 500,000 deaths on this kind of procedure a year. It's nothing. Well, I, I agree with you. And uh, I think that most of our ultrasounds are done by technicians and not the radiologists anymore. In the middle of the night, it's a technician. And our hope is that over time, they will, across the country, get more experience. And this really is the way to go. One other point I wanted to make about this, if you're getting an ultrasound and the technician reports back that the appendix was not visualized, it shouldn't be inferred that that means it was normal. Exactly. Uh, you should, if they say they didn't visualize the appendix, you've got to go back and reassess the patient and decide, am I worried about appendicitis? Because if I am, this test didn't help me. If I'm worried about appendicitis, I have, another, I have to either call my surgeon to help me with the, with the diagnosis or get a CAT scan to help me with the diagnosis. But the ultrasound just didn't help me. You can't write it off as normal. Let me ask you I've another real. Let me, ask, let me ask you another question. Um, contrast, no contrast. We usually do not uh, – well, I'm sorry. We, we usually uh, use IV contrast, yes. That's interesting because um, I don't know if you know Maureen McCullough. She's um, the head over at the PZD at the USC. She, they have a policy, no contrast, and it's a policy across the board that says no contrast unless you expe- uh, expect there to be a hole in the bowel that may be leaking or something mm-hmm. to that effect. And it's really interesting because um, she gave me the letter. It basically says the policy of the Department of, of Radiology of the University of Southern California says no contrast. And this is for re- residents as well as uh, faculty. I think it's institution dependent. I've got a couple of risk ma- straight risk management questions with regard to appendicitis. Number one, when you've got to do a CT scan on a kid, the surgeon won't come in. Uh, ultras- uh, the ultrasound was questionable. What do you tell them about X-ray exposure? Because you are you are you have a knowledge base that says there is some potential harm here. 
What do you think we ought to say to those parents at that moment in time? That's a very good question. Uh, I mean, informed consent means you should uh, warn them about uh, all the common risks and uh, and the serious risks. So uh, I think ethically we should, and legally, we should tell them about uh, the risks of, of a CAT scan. We should get it pre-printed because everybody's going to have a different idea of what that risk is. But mm-hmm. I th- think we should have a standardized risk that we uh, inform the parents of. Se- uh, question two. Now you've done your ultrasound. It's negative. The child is keeping fluid down. When do you want that child re- – it's 8 o'clock at night. When do you want that child reseen? I would think usually within about six six hours or so is probably a good idea. Middle of the night, I let them go home and sleep for a few hours. Uh, I don't think anything's going to happen in the next six hours or so. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad that you – we've got to put this forward that if the child is getting worse or the pain is at the same level, uh, you can't – these aren't adults. You can't write them off as, well, that's okay, see them 15 hours later, 20 hours later. If it's a kid – whose pain's getting worse, their vomiting's getting worse, they need to be reseen. They, they go bad faster than adults right. do. I mean, ideally, if you have an observation unit, this is the perfect patient to put in the OBS unit where you really can come back every few hours or the surgeon can come by every few hours and see how the baby, how the child's doing. If not, with reliable parents, we'll let them go home, but we warn them uh, in the morning we want to see the child again. Well, you, Steve, you're in, a, you're in a luxuriant situation right. where you have in-house pediatric surgeons. Uh, we have a lot of listeners who they may be the only doctor in the hospital. In fact, we right. do have a lot of those people. They're the only doctor in the hospital at 2 in the morning. And um, I, I, I think that they don't have that luxury. They've, they've got to make some decisions. And I think the uh, OBS, OBS unit may not be a bad uh, option for these folks. Right. And we have to rely on parents. Most parents are going to bring their child back. If you tell them, I want to see the child again in six hours to recheck the abdomen, if we explain carefully that appendicitis is tricky, we've all been fooled by appendicitis, it can be evolving, most parents are going to come back for that reevaluation. You know, I'm a little concerned that uh, we don't, um, I guess, try to establish a standard here because uh, I think it's kind of variable. If, in fact, the kid's getting worse, they ought to come back, you know, as soon as possible. And if you're relatively confident in these cases, um, but you still would like to be um, a little uh, extra uh, careful, then you know the 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 number might be come back at eight in the morning or something rather than you know four in the morning or preferably on somebody else's shift. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right, exactly. Well, Rick, do we have time for another case? Uh, actually, I think we're about an hour into this. I think we do have uh, time for another case. We generally go about seventy-five minutes. We do have a okay. couple of other things we want to cover. So, Steve, why don't you uh, give us uh, give us your best shot here? Yeah, parting okay. shot. Well, again, on that last one, the teaching point about uh, not overusing ondansetron, I think, is important. But moving on to the next case, uh, a nine-year-old boy fell at his friend's house, hit the left side of his head against the coffee table. His father put some pressure on it at home. He vomited at home. He complained his jaw hurt. That's where he smacked the table. The father gave him some ibuprofen, brought him to a local emergency department. He vomited in the emergency department in in the exam room. 
He was evaluated by the emergency physician and uh, determined that he had a, a laceration near the left ear. He sutured him up, discharged the patient at home. Unfortunately, the child continued to vomit at home multiple times and eventually was airlifted to another hospital where he was found to have a massive intracranial hematoma. This was a big lawsuit. It, it uh, resulted in a $2.5 million payout to the family. Wow. I, th- I think the point of this uh, here, again, I don't have the full examination by the physician, but I think it was claimed that a careful neurologic exam wasn't done. And I think this may have been a case where the doctor uh, went to the most obvious injury and said, oh, here's, here's what's wrong with the child and didn't evaluate the rest of the patient. And this has happened before. It's happened to me. I've been burned uh, in this situation, too, where you want to look at the obvious injury and forget that maybe there's a second injury or more serious injury elsewhere. And uh, that has to be evaluated before we, we suture up the, the laceration. Yeah. Don't tell us that the kid was on Coumadin because I'll go crazy. <laughs> no, nothing that complicated. <laughs> I think uh, people have struggled with the idea of um, guidelines for the uh, use of CTs in head trauma kids. Right. I mean, there's the PCARN guidelines and there's right. the CHALICE guidelines. And... Um, Generally, I think that uh, they may be fairly generous guidelines, but you know, when you have a temporal injury, that's a kind of not a good spot. Right. Uh, and when you have uh, repeated vomiting, that's kind of right. generally not a good idea uh, right. either. There is this issue about where you have your hematoma, and you're apparently you're allowed to have a frontal hematoma, but that's it. And um, I think that that those are the hematoma rules are are kind of. Um, generous in terms of who you're going to wind up CAT scanning. But I think people are, are looking for guidance on who of these kids should be um, CAT scanned and who should not. And there are a bunch of guidelines that you can look at. None of them are perfect. They're, they're not, you know, like the Ottawa Aqua rules or anything like that. But uh, we have to have some place to go in these cases rather than just physicians using their uh, judgment because occasionally you're going to be very, very, very wrong. Right. Well, this child didn't have any loss of consciousness, but I think the persistent vomiting was was a clue. I think there was also bad luck involved. If the patient comes in on a busy day, the child's going to get observed in the ED, like it or not. It's going to be sitting there for a while. Uh, but if the patient is there uh, late at night, as this child came in late at night and got in and out of the emergency department, uh, the hematoma could be expanding uh, before the child, uh, after the child's discharge from the hospital. Late at night, I think it's hard to tell parents to observe the patient at night. It's a Absolutely. little riskier to send the child home and say, uh, keep an eye on him when everybody knows they're all going to bed at 2.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. So maybe a little more cautious in the middle of the night than you would be at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. These are tough cases, though, because Definitely. there's no question we overutilize the CT scan in this country. Uh, having taught in a lot of places, nobody does, nobody does the knee-jerk scan that kid's head like we do. I think Rick's point about where the hematoma is, um, I hate to beat the drum again, but the quality of the examination does count. I mean, you know, does does this kid repeat words? Can he do this and that? I mean, there's got to be something here that we can do that tips us off that this kid is not doing well. And sometimes maybe a, a too rapid a trip through the department is not a good thing. Right. I can tell you a similar story. A child bitten by a dog, a young child bitten by a dog, and the, uh, 
a severe facial laceration and everyone focused on the face laceration. Plastic surgery was called in and no one recognized that on the scalp mm-hmm. there was a small puncture wound that the dog, the teeth of the dog had not just ripped up the face but caused a puncture wound on the scalp and the child came back later with a brain abscess. So I think the point again is here, don't just look at the obvious injury and think you're done. Uh, leave that. I think the radiologists, when they read an x-ray, they focus on the periphery and then they come in and look at the at the lungs at the end. And I think that's the way we should evaluate our patients is to look at the rest of the patient. We know there's a problem with the, with the face. We're going to get to that. Let's look at everything else first and then we'll come back and focus on the obvious injury. You won't get burned that way. Steve, I want to thank you for bringing these cases uh, up. Uh, we really appreciate your expertise and the opportunity to discuss them. We do have a few other uh, matters of business. Uh, please stay on the line. Uh, Greg, you have a newsflash? I do. And Steve, again, my thanks. And uh, make sure as you're leaving, you pick up a set of the Ginsu knives, <laughs> which uh, Rick bought in with him. Uh, yes, uh, I remember if, if back last year, I presented a case called Jillick, and this went to the Michigan Supreme Court, and in the Jillick matter, and believe me, we had people upset about this, the, the uh, Court of Appeals, after the physician had won at the trial court, it went to the Court of Appeals where they said, number one, yes, they got to use, this is on an urgent care they got to use the standards that would be applied against an emergency physician because this urgent care was a part of, technically, in organizationally, of the hospital's emergency department. The second thing is they said, yes, an emergency physician who never works in urgent care could give testimony against that doctor uh, uh, because, because the term emergency physician had been bantered around. So this went all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court. And in a, in a decision by the Supreme Court, which, by the way, was 4-3 in our favor, uh, they wrote that, uh, number one, the one most relevant specialty still holds. And since there are other people who do urgent care, an urgent care physician should be used to give the testimony, not someone who doesn't work in an emergency department. And uh, number two, they said because it was technically a part of an emergency department doesn't mean a different standard of care should be used on a particular patient. So although we, we bitch and piss and moan, occasionally justice is done. And uh, and Jillick uh, uh, has been decided in favor of the of the of the uh, group and the and the physician. So there you go, Greg. Let's why don't you do uh, wine of the month and then uh, I'll do a, another news flash and that'll probably be it. Oh, wine of the month, Rick. We're going back uh, for wine of the month. We're going back to to near your stomping grounds there, uh, California again. And let me tell you, there's some great stuff now coming out of Sonoma County. I I can't tell you how good this stuff is. Now, what's happened to the wine industry in the United States is, you know, we were complaining for a while, oh, the the, uh, French wines were priced out of sight because of the euro. You know, that's mostly cleared up now. What's driving prices in wine, in good wine, are the fact that the Chinese are now in the market. They're buying big time, 
And what you've seen in the last two years are considerable kickups uh, at the upper, land, uh, upper limits of the, of the wines in both uh, Napa and Sonoma County. So we're going back to Sonoma today, and I want to I give the readers just a couple of great wines, which have come along, are doing very, very well, and you need to know about. One of those, and I know there are people, the aficionados are going to go crazy about this, but Geyser Peak, one we all know, their 2010 Chardonnay, I, I mean, this, you can get this anywhere. You can get this at the drugstore. You, you know, winos drink this. Costco? And, you could get it at Costco for cheaper than this, and it and it's thirteen bucks a bottle. Now this has got to make this is an homage to Mel Herbert. He's got to be happy because here's a wine which one of the really good wine reviewers who who I I trust and I think a lot of has basically said great flavor for flavorful wine for this much money. The other one, which, which is uh, located in Sonoma, is Kendall Jackson. Now, again, people say, ah, oh, that's awful. It's this, it's that. You know what? At, at, to have something at 19 bucks a bottle that's rated a 90 uh, by Parker, that's pretty damn good. And here's the other thing. After the first bottle, bring out something expensive, you know, something that, Jerry Hoffman would serve for the first bottle. For the second bottle, bring out this wine. I mean, Kendall Jackson, 2009, Cabernet Sauvignon, Vintners, uh, Vintners Reserve. Great wine, great price. I mean, Sonoma's now got these $155 a bottle things. You know, I don't want to deal with any of that stuff. It's just wine. It turns to urine in two hours. and uh, But... These are two we're going to pass along and hope you enjoy them. Okay, Greg. Well, thanks uh, for your uh, your diatribe there. <laughs> uh, we're going to sign off, guys. I want to thank uh, Steve for joining us. And uh, Greg, we'll talk with you next month. We have lots of letters we're not, never getting to. Um, but we'll try next month to do that. We also have some other great interviews coming up. Gregory, uh, goodbye. Steve, see you around. Thanks. Rick, bye-bye. Bye.